Welcome to Prima's 2022 podcast series. My name is Shonda Ragland. I am the Director of Education at Prima. On this Prima podcast, Dr. Fernando Bronco will discuss complex regional pain syndrome, pitfalls of diagnosis and treatment. Dr. Bronco is the Chief Medical Officer at Midwest Employers Casualty. We will also be joined by Prima's Education Coordinator, Taekwon Gilbert. Taekwon will moderate the discussion. Enjoy the podcast. Thank you for joining us today, Fernando. Oh, thank you, Taquan, for inviting me for another podcast with uh, Prima. All right, to start, how do you diagnose complex regional pain syndrome? Well, complex regional pain syndrome, as the name says, it's a complex diagnosis. That means it's not an easy diagnosis to be made. There is some very clear criteria that's been uh, established by the International Association for the Study of Pain, IASP, and they made it very clear diagnostic criteria for complex regional pain syndrome. And you would have to have at least one symptom reported in at least three different categories. And these categories will be sensory changes, like somebody that really feels pain in a way that is not, let's say, you 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 hit your knee against something and you have pain associated, that's a normal pain, but different, the kind of pain that you be some air conditioning, uh, the, the, the air coming from the air conditioning gives you excruciating pain in an area of your body that is not compatible with reality. No normal person would have that kind of reaction. That kind of sensory changes that we're looking for. Somebody that you can't even touch the skin and the person has excruciating pain. The second one is vasomotor. And that's when you see temperature changes. It's normal to have a slight difference in temperature between limbs. Let's say your right leg to your left leg. But it shouldn't be more than one degree centigrade. We use centigrades in general. That's very close to Fahrenheit anyway, but it has to be at least one degree difference. And and that sometimes can, can be very difficult to determine. And I'll talk a little later how that should be measured. Also, you look at the, of the leg and you need to see if there is skin color changes. That's something that's very common. People say, or it's reddish or it's pale compared to the uh, other limbs or other areas of the body. Those are the things there. First one, sensory. Second one, vasomotor. The third one will be pseudomotor. Pseudomotor basically means sweating. You're going to notice that this limb sweating is reduced or sometimes even increased. It's very variable. In general, it's decreased. And that also can be objectively measured, like the temperatures, but it has to be done by doctors that are used to doing that. Those things that I'll mention in more detail. Also, you need to have the fourth criteria is motor or traffic and the motor piece is you're going to have problems with range of motion, weakness, a tremor, or some form of spasm, even dystonia. Dystonia is a pretty intense spasm that you find in there. And one of the most important ones will be called trophic changes. That's when people sort of really associated with complex regional pain syndrome that is changed in hair, nail, and skin. You see clearly that there is less hair in that area. The skin is completely different. It becomes very 
uh, frail and uh, it might be even peeling. You have nail that is uh, some pretty significant changes, you know, to the point that this uh, will, will look almost was quite abnormal looking, and when you you really see a true complex regional pain syndrome, these things are very clear. The diagnosis is done mostly with a physical examination following this criteria. In general, I graduated in 1986. I've been part of uh, diagnosing this kind of uh, of uh, problems uh, since then. I am a physical medicine rehab doctor. You know, I treated multiple patients uh, with this condition through decades. And one of the things that in my residency and uh, in my training, it was very important to know how to do this diagnosis properly. Properly, And unfortunately, what I saw lately is that we, we seem to have stretched this diagnosis a little bit yeah, we probably we are overly diagnosed. That means my recommendation would be somebody that really understand the complexities of complex region syndrome to do the right diagnosis. Also, this should not be diagnosed in an acute stage. You know, you see people that they have a an ankle or a knee that's twisted or or uh, traumatized, and in the diagnosis with complex regional pain syndrome, like in a week or two weeks, that's not even possible. Minimum time is between three months to six months. What you have is is just acute trauma, and you need to treat as such. And that's again something that you need to keep in mind to avoid uh, misdiagnosis. That that for me is the biggest problem of uh, complex regional pain syndrome. When you do this physical exam in detail, a lot of this testing can be done by the doctor in the office. The temperature changes, as I explained. Of course, you need to be careful when you do it. I did my graduate school in Minnesota, then I did my internship in Wisconsin, and it wasn't unusual for a patient to come in, and because they have the beginnings of complex regional pain syndrome, they, they have a hard time wrapping the limb, let's say you have the foot and will come in and the foot will be with no sock or no shoe. In Minnesota and Wisconsin, the temperature can be pretty cold around this time. And if you brought the patient in and measure the temperature right away, there will be a huge difference in temperature between the two limbs. One was completely covered, the other exposed to the elements. Then you need to really let the patient warm up and then see if there's still a difference temperature. And in the true complex regional pain syndrome, that will be true. But you can see that you need to be careful. You need to be experienced when you do this. A sweating test can also be done in the office, but most physicians don't even know how to do that testing. You need to be always aware that your physician does have the right tools to do that. Outside of this, normally it's quite common to see using a bone scan, and it's a good tool to use. It's not perfect at all. It's good to rule out. That means if you really don't see it, that means you basically say this is not complex regional pain syndrome. But of course, you need to really be like three months, six months, 12 months after injury to really the bone scan to be positive. That means if you do it before, because it isn't complex regional pain anyway at that point it will be negative. But if it's negative, let's say 12 months into this process, 
you can rule out complex regional pain syndrome. The problem is ruling in because bone scans can give a lot of false positives because if you have any osteoarthritis and other inflammatory issues, they might be positive and then give you a, a false positive complex regional pain. That means it's a good tool, better to rule out, not so good to rule in. The next thing is x-rays that are used quite often, very much something I don't recommend. It, it just gives uh, the doctor and the patient a feeling that they, they did an analysis, they're doing an x-rays, but the only time that complex regional pain syndrome will actually even be close to show on, on an x-ray is when you have end, end stage, I'll call uh, complex regional pain syndrome. And at that point, you probably already missed the boat in terms of treatment if it, it's that late. That's when we really get for the very complex cases that you probably will have a hard time helping this individual. The next thing that is used also for diagnosis, and that's a very also a very important tool, is we use sympathetic blocks. You know, if you guys remember, complex regional pain syndrome used to be called reflex sympathetic dystrophy. RSD, you know, the older of you will remember that and up to today, people still get them both confused and in reality, it's the same thing. It's just, it was more an academic separation. I don't think it was that helpful. I think it created even more confusion, but it's not up to me to to, to make that decision. It was an academic decision to separate between sympathetic dystrophy and a neuropathic dystrophy that I understand very well, but I think it created a little bit of, of confusion going, people, what is this RSD or this is a CRPS? It's the same thing. At the same time, I don't crazy about CRPS because quite often patients will come in and I'll say, what do you have? And they'll immediately say, oh, I have Crips. And, and obviously, Crips has a terrible feeling because it sounds like cripple. And, uh, and you know that, that language is important, and you definitely don't want to create disability mentality. When people start thinking about themselves as cripple, they feel like they cannot be helped, and, and this is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Probably one of the reasons I, I don't like CRPS, the name, but it is here. It's going to continue on that that will go in that direction. In terms of uh, using the sympathetic box, the good thing about it is that if you do, you don't do 12 sympathetic blocks, you do one, two sympathetic blocks. If the patient improves, and improvement is measured by clearly changes in a lot of these uh, parameters that I started up, sweating, temperature, pain, all that has to be immediately decreased, not a month later, three months later, the injection. It's like in the first 24 hours to 48 hours, you see a dramatic change on the case. If that's the case, you pretty much made the diagnosis of complex regional pain syndrome. If it doesn't respond, then you repeat it one more time. And in general, if you have a good intervention on physician, be an anesthesiologist, a PMNR doctor, a neurologist, whoever it is, if they have a good training and they use maybe fluoroscopy, that means they're doing a good job in hitting the right area with this. And if it doesn't respond twice, you're probably not dealing with complex regional pain syndrome. And unfortunately, what you see out there, the patients get three, 12 of the sympathetic blocks and they don't work. And the next recommendation is 
instead of saying this is not complex regional pain syndrome, let's treat whatever it is. It might be tons of other things. I could go for an hour talking about all the differential diagnosis from complex regional syndrome. Unfortunately, they go to the next step that's recommending spinal cord stimulator that uh, it is in very, very rare occasions. I won't go into the details right now because it's more about the diagnosis, this question. That's, you know, in a nutshell, that sounds pretty long, but that's one of the biggest issues that we have of complex regional pain syndrome is the diagnosis because misdiagnosis is, uh, I would say, rampant. Why has there been an increase in complex regional pain syndrome cases? Well, Taquan, related to some of the the issues that I mentioned before, as I said, you know, I started practicing in the mid-80s, giving my age out here, but, uh, you know, at the time, we didn't really diagnose people with complex regional pain syndrome very often, and I think often we missed the early stages of this syndrome in in I would say at the time, we're not doing a very good job diagnosing this disease. You know, I remember being taught how to do this, but most physicians got zero teachings at the time about what this disease was, how to diagnose it, and, and they completely ignored the disease. And like in a lot of different issues, I think sometimes they have a tendency to go from being overlooked to overly diagnosed give you two examples that we can, you know, maybe we have a podcast for either one of them. In the future, one is uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. You know that at some point we completely underdiagnosed that and now we overly diagnosed. And there's all sorts of reasons why we go from, you know, I call the pendulum issue, you know, go from one extreme to the other. And uh, there's several forces I'll mention. I think they're all kind of similar with what happened with complex regional pain. You guys that are old enough probably remember the the frenzy of ADHD diagnosis in the 80s and 90s. Before that, we completely ignored that kids uh, had uh, uh, restless syndrome issues. You know, they, they were completely ignored. And then every kid became an ADHD kid. And then we started giving them methamphetamines to counteract. Unfortunately... There was a need, and we needed to address the issue because it became so widespread. I had to deal, uh, when I did work with addiction, a large, large number of kids from the 80s and 90s. uh, They were addicted to amphetamines because of uh, Adderall use and other medications. That means sometimes we go from ignoring a problem and then to overly diagnose. And this happened with complex regional pain syndrome. We went from people don't even knowing what it was for people just calling basically everything complex regional pain syndrome. I see quite often, and when I was in practice before I joined Midwest, I, quite often 95% of the patients that came to me with a diagnosis of complex regional pain syndrome didn't have complex regional pain uh, because the doctors, they say, oh, there was a change in skin color and uh, there was a, the, the foot seemed to be a little cooler and, and the patient has hyperesthesia, that means it, it's painful, and they immediately do it without following any of the very clear criteria that you have to go through. And then, unfortunately, gives 
the wrong message to the team, the wrong message to the patient if you misdiagnose because the patient immediately is going to start reading about complex regional pain syndrome on on the internet and is going to feel like the end of the world because what you see in the internet is this one horrible case after another and the difficulties and the in the, the chronicity of the problem. And if you imagine that 95% of these people don't have this problem, instead of addressing the issues that they have, now they have what I call disability conviction. They believe they have this horrible chronic pain problem. And as I said, self-fulfilling prophecy, people start getting into that process. That means those. that's one issue. I think there is also some financial incentives, you know, because you, you see some of these procedures, they're, you know, be sympathetic blocks, you know, you guys know the, the explosion of intervention of physicians that happened in the 90s and the 2000s and continues to today, bonanza of, you know, procedures. That means in complex regional pain syndrome, you could do all these different sympathetic blocks. And then obviously the big, big one, the spinal cord stimulators that, of course, in my opinion, the vast majority of them are not the best next step. There are cases that I would consider using a spinal cord stimulator with several other things in conjunction with the spinal cord stimulator being installed. It's an interesting reason. I think it has to do also the diagnostic criteria has become also by the International Association becoming a little bit more laxed in their diagnosis uh, as the went, but most of it is a lot of doctors getting to know, supposedly knowing about this problem, and then diagnosed without using the proper criteria. And there's definitely probably some financial incentives. Unfortunately, in the end, the worst patients that actually don't have, I like the idea that we think about complex regional pain syndrome to, because to, to really treat appropriately, you need to treat complex regional pain syndrome early. That's why it is important to diagnose early, but not too early, of course, that it isn't complex regional at that point. What are some effective treatments for CRPS? We mentioned one that I think is one of the most important ones is the, the sympathetic blocks. They are diagnostic. That means they make the diagnosis and they are also therapeutic. That means they, they can treat the condition. And what you get is some improvement, let's say, in a, in a good, uh, good results will be three months with improved symptoms, six months a year. Then you might repeat it every few months if necessary. And during that period, then you do this very, very intensive physical therapy treatment. And the focus here is called aggressive desensitization. It's very counterintuitive treatment. Because when you have somebody that you can't even breathe uh, on their foot or their hand because of complex regional pain syndrome, what you're going to do is actually use very rough techniques of actually causing pain to decrease pain. And that's why I say it's counterintuitive, but good physical therapists know how to do this and definitely needs to be done by a physical therapist. The patient will never be able to do this on their own because I said it's so counterintuitive. You have to, to just say, okay, I'm going to cause pain because then I'm going to get better. And that's how it works. You know, it's like the typical, the pain, that they, if you have pain, don't put your foot down, and then they walk around hopping around in the other foot, when in reality it's going to tell them, no, you step on that foot. It doesn't matter that it hurts because then 
the normal response of any human or any animal is that if you have pain, you don't step on it. But complex regional pain syndrome, you need to go against your normal instinct. That means those things have to be done uh, very, very in conjunction with the sympathetic blocks. If sympathetic blocks were not helpful, then you're not dealing with complex regional pain syndrome. Another thing that's very important is to use what's called cognitive behavior therapy. As I mentioned before, you need to be worried about this person becomes disability conviction and and be completely taken into this process of becoming the diagnosis. You know, you see patients and you say, what, what is it? Oh, I, I, I have CRIPS, and, and CRIPS becomes their identity. You know, it's almost like takes over their whole life, and you definitely don't want to do that. That's why we use cognitive changes, change in behaviors to, to hopefully help to cope with this pain in a different way and not let take over your whole life. Years ago, I remember one of my patients had complex regional pain syndrome, very smart young man, and uh, he told me, oh, I, I, I created a group on the internet of people with complex regional pain syndrome. And I said, oh, that's very nice, you know. A group therapy is always a good thing, you know, most of the time, because there is support and then people can share techniques and how to get better. Unfortunately, because this was not really moderated, I went on the site and it was just a horrible site because in the end, the only thing they did there is reinforce disability, reinforce bad habits, because it was everybody just complaining about how bad things were and how much worse they would get. But that's not helpful, you know, and that goes exactly against what cognitive behavior therapy is. In terms of medications, not a lot of medications, but definitely no, no use of narcotics. Narcotics is probably the worst thing you can ever give a patient with complex regional pain You can use over-the-counter inflammatories. Uh, One medication that can be helpful is clonidine because it's an alpha blocker. It can interfere with the sympathetic piece of it, and it's a pretty good medication uh, I've used in some of the patients. In cases that are very, very difficult, I would say uh, if you have a, a good functional restoration program with a multidisciplinary approach, that will include CBT. That's a possibility, but that's for, for really severe cases. And uh, one other option, unfortunately, I, I feel the overly done. You know, it's that silver bullet. You know, patients are desperate. They didn't get the correct treatment, and they get into the end of the, their rope, and uh, the doctor says, okay, you need a spinal cord stimulator. And sometimes they do help for, for a period of time. Quite often, the pain overcomes the stimulus, and then now you have quite a few problems associated with having a spinal cord. Remember, it's a foreign object into your spine. It's not just a little, uh, how sometimes the doctors describe it, it's just a little stimulation. No, it's a pad attached to your spinal cord that can never be removed. Uh, The only way that can be removed is to have open neurosurgery into your spine to remove those pads. That means it's not a really simple little surgery, surgery, a simple procedure. It's quite uh, invasive, and there are lots of problems associated with it. I've seen so many from myelitis, inflammation of the spinal cord, with paralysis, uh, with uh, hardware that breaks on a regular basis, problems with the stimulator per se that has to be changed multiple times. It's a very expensive issue, and it makes me very uncomfortable when I see a, a 25, 30-year-old putting a spinal cord stimulator. That means, are you going to have a spinal cord stimulator for life? 
because how are you going to be able to come out of that situation? And unfortunately, I see them putting the spinal cord stimulant. Then the gets better for a few months. And instead of doing then the desensitization, the aggressive physical therapy, they don't do anything. And then eventually it doesn't work. That means it's not completely a disaster, but it's not a great thing. There is even crazier things like ketamine injection, ketamine infusions, but we'll address that at some other moment. Is CRPS curable? Yeah, well, it's a difficult thing to answer. I think the simple answer is yes. If caught on time and treated properly, yes, it can be curable. Your body has an incredible capacity to get back into normal for healing, and I've seen quite a few patients. I also saw some that for not the majority, a very small minority, even with all the treatment, things still progressed. That means in a few cases, we're probably only going to be able to improve function, improve life quality, reduce the pain to a certain degree, but not completely stop the problem. Uh, that These are some cases. Uh, you won't know that until you you try all the the treatments, most of them, physical therapy and, and simple injections instead of spinal cord stimulators or ketamine injections, to determine if this is going to be a case that will be resistant to treatment. But in general, yes, it's curable. It might not happen to everybody, but we can always improve quality of life, function, and probably cope with the pain in a different way. I know that you refer to a number of medications that can be applied to the treatment of CRPS, but can ketamine also play a role in the treatment? Well, you know, it's been used quite often uh, lately, Taquan. Is, uh, it has become, um, you know, it started up with uh, something that was done only outside of the country because it was not FDA regulated and continues not to be FDA regulated, but it's it's considered acceptable at least to, to be done in the United States. I personally have had poor experiences with patients that I review. I, uh, there, there are some papers out there that, that show some improvement with ketamine infusions, but I'm a physical medicine rehab doctor. I'm also board certified in pain and addiction. And ketamine is a very problematic substance. Ketamine is, is a product that has been abused for decades by drug users because of its potential for hallucinogenic effects. Of course, that's not what the patients are looking for on this, but the issue is ketamine still a hallucinogenic, and we will give the patients a manic state. When they receive these infusions, this medication is so mind-altering and that we also have to give huge doses of benzodiazepines to calm the patient down. They are done mostly in hospitals or um, medical centers, and uh, they can be done during a day, two days, maybe a week. Uh, you know, and that is one another problem of the, for me over the ketamine infusions that they they have no regulation. You know, they they have no standards. Uh, what every doctor does in a different way. Uh, the dosage is different. I'm sure there will be doctors who say that's not true. I, but I I review several cases and every protocol was different from the one before. We don't really know 
how it really acts on, on individuals long term. I've, I've had a few cases, but again, this is all anecdotal because that's just my experience. But I did, I did see a lot of patients and a lot of them that came from uh, ketamine injections. Some of them had cognitive changes after several infusions. They became, their affect was, was altered. That means I can't prove these things. This was just my impression of, of examining these patients. Some patients will say that their pain is improved because it sort of breaks that cycle to a certain degree. I won't say that no, this is a, I wouldn't recommend to any patient. That's not my, my view of this. And, and as I said, I have, I have worked with a lot of patients with this problem. And I think that the, it's all about risks and benefits. I think the risks are higher than the benefits that I see in here because you're not going to be able to spend the rest of your life going through this process of, of uh, this very powerful medication being injected on you on a regular basis, you know, and nobody really knows how this works long term. Uh, that means at this point, I think this is most trial of this medication. And again, I think there is some uh, financial incentive involved. As you can imagine, uh, this is a, an expensive process. Infusions that need to be done in a hospital. Some of these infusions can cost $10,000, $20,000 minimum. That means that there is other incentives there. I'm not saying that's the only reason. And I've seen most of the time used in very difficult cases. But unfortunately, I've seen this been given to even very mild cases and even start talking about using ketamine infusions to treat depression patients and other disorders that I think it's a, a dangerous trend. But that's my personal opinion. I'm not going to say that, that everybody sees it that way. I wouldn't recommend it. Is it been used? Yes, it has. The literature is not there yet, and if you follow the American College of Occupational Environmental Medicine and uh, the ODG, Official Disability Guidelines, neither recommend ketamine infusions. They also don't recommend spinal cord stimulators. And, and those two groups, I, I have them very highly because they both base their recommendations on the literature, on the, 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 the data that really shows efficacy, even that sometimes they might not even recommend certain things that I think are, are good recommendations and I would use, but they base everything on that. That means I don't think there is enough information right now to recommend those infusions. We have reached the end of our podcast. Thanks to our speaker and all of our listeners. Please visit the Prima website to hear other Prima podcasts, view Prima webinars, read Prima blogs, and learn about other Prima educational resources. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and our very own Prima Talk. Have an amazing day.